Welcome to Littoral, a podcast from the literary shores of the Hudson, part of River River Writers Circle, a nonprofit arts organization in New York. Find us online at riverriver.org. Hi, it's Donna Lee Miele, and I'm here with Maureen Amaturo. Hi, Maureen. Hello, Donna. Nice to see you. And thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Maureen is an enthusiastic regular at our Westchester Write Circles. Coming from a background as a fashion and beauty columnist, she received her MFA from Manhattanville College in 2015. Since then, she has taught creative writing and produced literary events at many places, including, most recently, Manhattanville College, where she organizes events for the Writers Hub. She leads the Sound Shore Writers Group, which she founded in 2007. Her publications include two beauty how-to guides for Avon products, personal essays, creative nonfiction, short stories, and humor pieces, featured in Ovunque Siamo, Boned, Bordighera Press, Abstract Magazine, Pink Panther Magazine, Bluntly Magazine, Unoya Review, Months to Years, Mothers Always Write, and BaseballBard.com, among others. And part of what we're talking about today is the diversity of the journals that have accepted her recent work. Since last June, Maureen has had 16 pieces of prose accepted for publication, 14 of which originated from prompts in River River Write. This is remarkable not only because it speaks to Maureen's raw talent, although she has plenty of that, as well as a wonderful sense of humor, which editors often long for in the submissions they read. Many of us are dedicated writers, disciplined revisers, even dogged submitters to all of our favorite journals. If you've been writing for publication and have been sending out your work on spec, meaning unsolicited, you might have a sense of how many journals you need to send your work to to get even one acceptance. It's a daunting process that requires hours of research on top of the hours and hours of revision you already devote to the artistic side of your writing life. But part of what Maureen is bringing us today is the reassurance that there are places looking for your work. So Maureen, for each piece for which you received an offer of publications, how many times on average do you think you sent it out? Most of the time, between five and 10, which were the quick responses. That is quick. That is quick. And, but for some of my favorite pieces, which have still not been accepted, I have one of my favorite pieces out to 78 different wow. literary journals. Wow. Received 27 rejections so far and still waiting to hear on the balance of those. But it's one of my favorite pieces and because I'm encouraged, because other things have been accepted, I have no problem sending it to 78 or how many more it might take. We'll see. So you know you've dedicated the time and the, um, the discipline to producing the best work that you can and you have the confidence in it because you've had that experience elsewhere. Absolutely, and one thing I've learned, especially from writing teachers I've had, is believe in your own work. If you don't believe in it, no one else will. And a friend of mine, Lee Stringer, who's a wonderful memoir nonfiction writer, taught me well, truth is obvious on the page. If your truth is not on the page, the reader can tell. So when your passion is there, whoever reads your work, including the editors, will sense it. So you've done your work on that part already. And then when you get to submission, you're onto a different part of the work. Then you become a business person. 
and you become your own agent. Mm -hmm. And it's our job, once we are totally happy and confident in the work we've produced, now we have to look for all the places that would be most likely to be in the same brainwave we're in for that piece. And what I've discovered is the pool of venues out there is infinite. It is not as limited as we might think. So number one, you, you got to know that hope is your most worthy partner. <laughs> so start Googling. I have discovered literary journals and magazines and online and prints and anthologies out there that I never knew existed. And they make it pretty easy for you. And this is an affordable experience. It has not cost me a penny to find all this information. There are fabulous resources like submittable.com, which most writers know about. Um, a website out there called C-R-W-R-O-P-P-S, and I believe it's sponsored by Yahoo. And you could Google that and find out how you can get on their mailing list. And you may be inundated with um, a lot of emails, but it constantly feeding you information on venues that are looking for submissions, residencies, contests, teaching positions, anything to do with writing. And I've discovered a lot of opportunities that way. Yeah, I'm looking that up just now, and it's called the Creative Writers Opportunity List. So apparently they have a meetup, and they also have a Yahoo group. The Yahoo group, um, I believe the emails may be generated from that. Mm -hmm. And the woman who founded this is a poet. And she originally did this many years ago, more specifically to poetry. But now it would embrace all types of writing across genres. That's fantastic. What a great service. And that seems like it's been around for a while, if it's a Yahoo uh, group. It might be around, been around about 20 for a years. Time. Yes. Um, thank you for that. That's mm -hmm. a really good tip. But this is a good segue into talking about your work. Okay. Um, what, what was your process for finding the right places to send your work to? Do you use a scattershot approach, or are you pretty discerning about where you send things? A little bit of both. Uh, first of all, you, you know your work, and you know what the theme is. You know what it, the, the content is or what it's about. So start Googling where to send stories about grief, where to send stories about food, where to send stories about um, the humorous female experience. And some of those words will just start tagging and picking up appropriate um, websites or magazines or whatever that deal with that kind of topic. And you get a whole menu to look at. Start clicking on them. Start looking at their submission guidelines. Look in their archives. Look at the tone of the writing that they tend to publish. Um, when you do that, also look at the bios of some of the authors whose work you're reading on their sites, and you can see where else those authors have submitted work, and that's another way to find out about more journals that you might be able to research. Yeah, I think you, we're not going to read from this piece today, but there was a piece that you had published in Boned, mm. an online journal, I believe. Yes. And I recall your story about it was that it was about a bookstore made of skulls, and you literally came across it because it only publishes work that's about bones. 
This totally surprised me. So this is another reason why everyone should believe there is a chance for everything and for everyone. Donna, you gave us a prompt that was something about skulls in a bookstore or something like it that. It must have been Halloween. It might have been, and I frequently go to Salem. So I'm thinking, I use that as my setting. I wrote this story. It was fun. I was like, well, let me see what I could do with this. I started to Google spooky stories, ghost stories, horror stories. None of them were the right tone, and I started stories with skeletons, stories. All of a sudden, this journal appears um, boned, and they publish only stories that include skeletons in the story. And it's like, well, how specific can that be? Sent it. That was the only place I sent it, and they accepted it, and that's coming out in fall of 2020. And that hardly ever happens, where you send to one place and you get a response right away, and you're done. That's it. Uh, you know, I think I have special guardian angels, special writing guardian angels, um, because that has happened to me three times. That's fantastic. But I do believe it comes from targeting the right venue when you know exactly what they're looking for and if your work really does fit that you've just increased your chances greatly i agree i think that's a very smart way to look at it and to remember that any little thing in your work could be the focus of a particular publication Absolutely. how um how do you keep track of your submissions this is another thing that writers struggle with so i i use duotrope but this is a paid service. And uh, in the old days, before there was Duotrope, there were other ways, you know, people kept file cabinets um, or other ways of doing it. But, but how, do you, how do you do it? Wilma Flintstone of technology here. <laughs> so I am one step away from paper file cabinets. I have actually graduated to digital files. Remember, if you do use Submittable, they do keep track of yes your submissions, the date, and it's organized chronologically, whether the work is in progress, et cetera, for those who have never used Submittable. Um, but I, every time I do a submission, I have a complete digital file for every piece of work. And within that file is, of course, you know, the original version of the work, all the edited versions, the final version, and then I have a separate file for every magazine or journal or anthology or contest that I've submitted that to. And I keep, even though it's on email or insubmittable, I keep, I make a Word document and I copy all, I copy information onto each Word document. So I will have the submission with the submission letter. I will have the submission confirmation and I will have any copies of any kind of communication that may have happened since. So the entire biography of that work is in that one folder. Because as we've discussed in past weeks, not every journal is on submittable. That's true. Not every journal is on Duotrope. So you do have to have some kind of way to track things outside of those platforms. And you know, this is a horrifying glimpse into an organized mind, but it's a fact. And this is really what I want to get at, though. We research markets. We keep track of our submissions. We have a filing system by which we know what 
pieces we've submitted where so we don't embarrass ourselves by sending the same rejected piece someplace twice. How much of your writing life do you think this process takes up? This is a great deal of time. It takes me more time to do submissions than it does to create. I deliberately dedicated the summer. This was my target goal for the summer, submit. I had built up a wonderful collection that I was happy with thanks to River River Write sessions over the past two years. And I was like, well, now that I have all these pieces, I should do something with them. Plus, it was an excuse to take a break from mm -hmm. a novel manuscript that I've been working on because I needed a fresh eye to go back to that at a later time. And keeping the confidence that that would get accepted somewhere, I wanted to build up my m some more contemporary publishing credentials to have for submissions when I do put the manuscript out there. I said, well, that's what I'm going to do this summer. And starting in June, I say I had determined I would do at least three to five submissions a day. And I would spend probably from 7 a.m. till almost noon just on submissions. And that's the researching, the copying, the pasting, the, le the cover letters, adjusting the bios, changing the manuscript format for every individual submission guidelines requirement. There's a lot of administrative work in that. So other than the right sessions, which you continued coming to, and that's a two-hour session on a Friday, mm -hmm. the process of submission really took up your writing time. That was my full-time job for the summer, was submissions, because I had done all this writing for two years and had it all in a folder. And it's like, okay, I built up material, now I have to go sell it. Thank you. With that, we're going to turn to the readings. Oh. Maureen has generously agreed to read from a couple of the 16 pieces she's had accepted for publication this year. And we'll continue the discussion a bit in between the readings. First, we'll hear Maureen read from Unseasonable, which was published at Months to Years in print and online in September 2019, and is forthcoming at Unoya Review also in September 2019. So this is another tip is there are journals that take reprints so you can do double mileage from one piece. We'll talk a little about the prompts this piece arose from and the submission process specific to it after the reading. Maureen. Thank you. Unseasonable. Her death didn't match the season. It was July, bright and warm, the air nourishing and jittery with little wings and sounds. Things were blooming and green and lush and lively. Fireworks every Friday night and grill cooking granted no oven to clean. It should have been the best of times, but she died in July. She would have liked to wait two more weeks to celebrate her 75th birthday. We would have had a party. She would have loved that. She was happiest when she was the center of attention. That July, she was. So many came to see her. She lay center stage, looking more beautiful than most of her audience. She was stunning in death as she was in life. That particular July became a dark season for me. I didn't mind. Always hated summer anyway. The post-mortem tasks passed the time and claimed my mind. So much easier to let banking and paperwork and phone calls and emptying her house our family home 
crowd my head instead of the iceberg reality that she was dead. Other than her leaving just before her birthday, I'm glad she chose July. I have no attachment to the month. Out of all the months, it ranks 12. Now that it's the anniversary of her death, I dislike July even more. Considering the weather and the jovial atmosphere of the month, some might say her death was unseasonable. But my mother knew that was the right month to leave. She would never have ruined October for me. Mothers are like that, always thinking of their children first. Death, its timing, its manner, its reason, pay no mind to season. It is not beholding to accommodation, consideration, nor convenience. Death itself is always unseasonable. Its arrival is not always unexpected, but, is, but its timing is. No one is privy to death's schedule. It's the spirit who is departing, who is likely in cahoots with God to conjure an exit plan, a departure time. That must be it. When I remember how she called so many old friends the week before she left to say goodbye, I am sure she could hear her days clicking away. She knew. When I arrived at her house, which would be the last time I would take her to chemo or see her alive, instead of the usual hug and kiss, she held my arms when I stood to move away. She said, let me hold you a little longer. She pulled me close again and squeezed me as she hadn't done since the strength had left her arms. When she let go, she stared at my face as if studying my features for the first time, the features she and my dad created as if to memorize them so she wouldn't forget them, so she could carry the image of my face into her eternity. Touching my cheek, she said, you get more beautiful as you get older. I know now that she was saying goodbye. Death is not so much unseasonable as it is unreasonable. She would have loved to stay a little longer to see me get a little older. Would have been nice for both of us, but she died that July and left that month unseasonably cold. Thank you, Maureen. You're welcome. I remember the day you wrote that, and all of us at the table knew that was a keeper. Uh, I, I, my first reaction, your prompt was unseasonable, and I had three different starts to that prompt, and I couldn't land on something. And I don't know where that came from, but it happened. And, and I remember you looking at me saying, that's the next one that's going to get published. <laughs> well, everybody, everybody, there were eight people here or something, no. and everyone was deeply affected. Um, you Thank really you. connected the reader so easily to a universal human experience through a very specific story. Um, let's hear a little bit more about that one, just real quickly. What were your, do you recall your specific search terms, um, the number of submissions you made? Actually, I searched um, stories about death, stories about grief, stories about loss, and there are quite a few um, magazines and literary journals out there that just focus on that, um, different aspects of it. And when I came, and this is one of those stories that I had sent out only three times and it was accepted by two of my attempts. So. It was a magazine, months to years is specifically about the death experience and grief. And they named their venue months to years because that's terminology that doctors use when yes. figuring, you know, well, you may have so many months or years to, to go. 
And while it seems like such a, a, a sad, heavy, negative thought, there's a lot of beautiful sentiments in the finality of life and memory. And this is what you brought into this was the, the courage to see the beauty in, in that grief. So thank you. Um, when you were looking at markets, I, I know when you say that there are a lot of markets that deal with grief, I, I, I know from having looked myself, there, there are, you probably would hit hundreds yeah. if you um, Googled literary journal grief. What were your considerations when you, you only had to submit it to three places in the end. What were your considerations? It was early in the process. I was happy that it was accepted. So as I said, it was only three, three submissions out there. The first submission accepted it and I took it. Months to years is not a paying market, but I was in the beginning of the process here and that was fine with me. My goal was to build publishing credentials and get my work out there, and that was gonna let me do it, and I was happy to have it accepted. As the months went on during the summer and I was doing more and more research and finding so many other venues that accept reprinted material or previously published material, I said, well, I like that story and someone else did. I might as well try another market that is open to this type of a topic and it worked, and it was Fantastic. accepted a second time. So we will turn to the second reading now. The next reading is Breakfast Served Daily, so maybe we could talk about this a little bit before we do the reading. Okay. Um, it's a very different piece, and I imagine that also your process around it was very different. So let, let us know similar stuff. What prompt did you use? What considerations did you have when you were submitting it around? Okay. Well, when submitting Breakfast Served Daily, I was Googling um, magazines or journals that look, are looking for food stories, travel stories, cooking stories, um, humor. All those were my topics because this piece would fit in any of those genres. So um, I came. There were so many that picked up that picked up on that and believe it or not they, I even found this anthology that was putting together all flash fiction pieces just on food and they were not distinguishing between like how-to or humor or memory with food or um, anything so gave it a shot and now this will appear in both places. Fantastic. Yeah, so. And let's mention those places here. Breakfast Served Daily was published in Ovunque Siamo in July 2019 and is forthcoming in a flash nonfiction food anthology in spring 2020 from Woodhall Press. Yes. And this was the the food related market that you were talking yes. about. Yes. Yes. Breakfast Served Daily came from one of your prompts, Donna. I think your husband had just been traveling and you were talking about the American breakfast. Well, here we go. He had been elsewhere and it's only in in other parts of the world if they serve eggs and coffee and you sit down, they call it American breakfast. So, you know, we, we don't really think of that as a thing here necessarily, but that's what that came from. Well, I'm all about food. So when you said that and I remembered oh, all the traveling I've done and how befuddling breakfasts and toilets were, <laughs> were at, you know, in different countries. So it was always a game. Can you figure out how to flush the toilet? <laughs> I, yeah. 
So um, Breakfast Served Daily took me, actually from that prompt, I have to interrupt myself, I ended up writing two separate pieces from that one prompt, both of which have been published multiple times. Fantastic. That one prompt led me in two different directions. I had them combined into one, realized the tone was different, they're really two pieces, and there you go. I had and that's where the discipline of the craft comes in. When that is done, the discipline of submitting to appropriate journals should take just as much time and effort. And it if does. you are interested in publication, and not all of us are, but if you are interested in publication, it's good to be aware that your time spent researching and submitting is not time spent away from writing. It is part of your writing. It life. is definitely part of your writing. And if you have a goal, then you have no other obligation but to be motivated toward that goal. It won't happen unless you make it happen. And it can happen if you work at it. So I just want to encourage writers, if you do it, it will come. So you mentioned that the minimum number of submissions you've had to make is one, um, and that the maximum that you've made of one particular piece is 75. Just out of curiosity, how many submissions do you have out right now? Well, right now I have 127 submissions out there, and that covers a variety of venues and about nine different stories I'm working with sending out. Nine stories. Nine That's different. fantastic. So. I, I, like to, I, I like to hear that because people don't believe me all the time. They, well, they may believe you. Well, I didn't believe it, <laughs> but I don't even know how to you know, account for this. I'm thrilled. So. With that, let's turn to the reading. This is Maureen Amatoro reading from Breakfast Served Daily. There's nothing easy about eggs over easy. Usually I miss the pan. Often I flip only half and always I leave some of it drooling onto something it shouldn't. And I hate frying bacon because then the house smells all day, so I don't do it. Pancakes throw my schedule off. My family will eat cereal, but only as a snack at the most unexpected times. They always ask me to buy cream cheese, but I think it's just to see how long they have to wait to see the mold grow. And my kids will never forgive Kellogg's for frozen waffles. Not the biggest issue in my life. Strangely, breakfast doesn't have the rules in my house. Though eating and cooking for my family is my core focus, as it was for all the mothers on my family tree. Breakfast just isn't popular. Let's be honest, it's not the most social meal, in America anyway. But sometimes I think if, if the American breakfast were more like those in Europe, except Germany where they serve salami and blood sausage at 7 a.m., I could make breakfast a thing again, like in Paris, a croissant, a crusty roll, orange marmalade and hot chocolate daily. Yes and yum, and that's why 30 million Frenchmen can't be wrong. Come to think of it, I don't even remember eating breakfast in Italy was probably still full from those nine-course 10 p.m. dinners. Forget England. Nothing was edible in England or Scotland. I tried a scotch egg. What a surprise, and not in a good way. Could this be where Dr. Seuss discovered green eggs and ham? I couldn't eat breakfast in Wales, too early in the morning to deal with a menu that doesn't use vowels. Never once did I yearn for American breakfast in Belgium. 
That was all chocolate all the time. Sometimes on a waffle, but not necessarily in the morning. I'm giving Madrid a half star. Chorizo and a cup of chocolate to dip it in. Guess which part gets the star. Denmark was wedges of cheese and a side of jelly. In Austria, someone said the food on the dish was rabbit. No, thank you. I don't know what was on the breakfast table in Sweden. I couldn't look. Liechtenstein, lovely little Liechtenstein. They don't eat breakfast. It's a small country. Amsterdam, I remember two things about Amsterdam. We were not allowed to eat French fries on the canal boats, and there was a marijuana store on every corner. I think people eat breakfast all day there. I remember something else. There was a local pub named Cafe Hell, but I don't think they served breakfast. Portugal was a problem. Seafaring people that they are, they built every meal around fish. I hate seafood, and everything was cooked in 10W40. Luckily, I had my gallbladder removed before that trip. But none of that is my daily reality. I live with the American breakfast, whatever that is. Last I heard, I think it's anything with at least 15 grams of protein and a carton of coconut water, but maybe that trend ended earlier today. Hold on, it just switched to avocado toast. Stay tuned. American food trends change every hour on the half hour. Definitely not as reliable as Paris's morning bread and marmalade. Anyway, I hold this truth to be self-evident. Like most things in America, breakfast can be whatever I make it. So, the American breakfast is not as romantic or exotic as some of the vacation breakfasts I've faced. At home, I may wake up to a tub of moldy cream cheese. Wait, does mold count as a houseplant? But I'm still grateful I don't live in Portugal waking up to oily fish. Thank you so much, Maureen. You're welcome. So if you're in Westchester and would like to join Maureen and me and a really nice group of writers actually for a lunchtime writing circle, please visit our calendar online at riverriver.org for details about write at Manhattanville College. This has been a presentation of Littoral, a podcast from River River Writers Circle in Nyack, New York. Find us online at riverriver.org and support us at patreon.com. Thanks for listening.